Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, where this morning we will, we will look through verses 7 to 14. I wonder, what do you think is the point of Christianity? What's it really all about? Maybe you actually came here this morning wondering that very thing. Now I'm asking you what it's all about. And you're like, hey, isn't that your job? I came here to listen to you tell me what this is all about. We're definitely going there today. Uh, but just to get your wheels turning, I wonder where your mind naturally goes. What's the point of Christianity? What's it, what's it really all about? Maybe you've heard of some of the practices that Christians are known for. You know, baptism is involved. Heard about that in prayer. Church attendance, you know, that matters a lot. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you've heard about some of the beliefs that Christians are known for. You know, it, it all has something to do with the death of Jesus. I mean, we've sung songs that have a lot of blood in them. You know, blood is involved. But you also know we've sung about kings and kingdoms, so there's something social going on here too. And it all has something to do with heaven. You've pieced that together. And all that stuff matters a lot. All of it is part of Christianity. What's the point of Christianity? What are all these details, these practices and these beliefs really all about? At the center of all of it, the things that we believe, the things we're supposed to do, all of it, right at the center is a personal knowledge of God. Christianity is not really a system of ideas, although there's definitely things you need to know about and agree to. Christianity is not really a set of principles to live by, though it has a huge effect on what we do and why we do it. Christianity is not, first and foremost, a program for social renewal, though it absolutely speaks to what the world should look like and to where the world is headed. Friends, the ideas, the practices, the vision for society, all of it, all of it flows from a personal relationship to the God who made us. Christianity is about knowing God. That's the center. Now, now maybe you're listening to this. You've been a Christian a long time. And you're thinking, I know it's supposed to be about that. But I'm not even sure what that means, to be honest. Knowing God? I mean, how could you even really? What is that? Where is he, for example? How do I see him? Where do I look for him? How do I pursue him? How do I know that I've found him? You know, even Christians who've been Christians a long time wrestle with questions like that. They want more out of their relationship with God. Maybe that's you. Uh, friend, whether, whether you're yet a Christian or have been a Christian a long time, what I hope has brought you here this morning is a desire to know God more, to experience more of who he is. And if that's what's brought you here this morning, you're in a treat. You're in for a treat because that's the point of our text. That's what, it's, that's what it's about. We're looking carefully, verse by verse, through this section of John's gospel that all took place on the night that Jesus was betrayed just before he died to save his followers and all who had trusted him from their sin. This is a supercharged environment, a, a highly compressed environment in which this teaching that comes to us comes with, with a clarity and a brilliance, much like a diamond forced together through the, at, at, the, at the core of the earth. 
in this supercharged environment, in these final moments that he had on earth, with his final words to his dearest friends, Jesus is showing us what his coming, what his teaching, what his doing, and what his movement is all about. And in this text this morning, he turns to spiritual knowledge, how you get it, and how it's shared from one person to, the, uh, to another. Uh, much as we've seen in a couple of other texts in this, in this section, Jesus starts with something he's doing, something he alone has come to do, something only he could possibly do. And then he shifts to something he wants his followers to do in light of what he has done. There's what he's doing, and there's what we do as his followers. And I want to just walk you through two simple points from verses 7 to 14 this morning. Two simple points. Point number one is going to be this. We know God through Jesus. That's simple point number one. That's verses 7 to 11. We know God through Jesus. Point number two comes from verses 12 to 14. Others know Jesus through us. Others know Jesus through us. Two simple points. I want to invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read the text that we'll consider together this morning, picking up in verse 7 and reading to verse 14. This is the word of the Lord to us. Jesus is saying, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The, the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point number one this morning, guys. We know God through Jesus. This is the point that comes out in verses 7 to 11. Jesus enters a new phase in this conversation, beginning with a striking claim and a very understandable follow-up request from Philip. Jesus says in verse 7 that knowing him is knowing the Father. That through himself, from now on, you know and have seen God. That's the claim. And it leads to Philip's request, which makes a lot of sense. Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Now, to understand what's going on in these few verses, I think you first got to understand Philip's insight and then understand Philip's oversight. 
You've got to understand Philip's insight. He's on to something when he asks Jesus to show them the Father. He's not being dense here. He's showing crucial insight into what it means to be a human. Philip knows that there's no deeper longing in the human heart than the longing to see the one whose image we bear. He knows there's no greater joy out there, no greater treasure out there, no more transforming power out there than seeing the God who made us. This right here is the reason that we are always questing as humans. We're always looking for something, working towards something, searching for something. And we're always coming up at least a little bit short of what we hope for. He's getting at the reason that you can finish one season and wish there was another one to watch. That you can buy something and just as soon as you click buy, want something else. That you get to the vacation you've been longing for and you get a little bit underwhelmed by it. That you get through the holidays and feel low after. We humans are always looking for and moving toward the next thing. And over and over we feel let down. And the reason that we're like that, the Bible tells us, is that we, we were made to crave and to enjoy the goodness of God as our only true satisfaction. There's nothing else that'll do it. And Philip is asking the right question. Show us the Father. Where can we see the Father? If we see the Father, Philip says, it'll be enough for us. If we see Him, we'll be satisfied. Philip is right. In fact, he's dialed into the crucial driving desire behind the story of Israel that unfolds through the Old Testament. Philip right here, he, he's just echoing something Moses had prayed for. When Moses was, was receiving God's law for God's people out in the wilderness, he prays to God and he asks him, Lord, show me your glory. Exodus 33. When, when Philip says, show us the Father, he's just echoing the prayers of the Psalms. You can find this everywhere. Like Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord. This I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Philip's echoing Psalm 27. And when Philip says, show us the Father, Philip is looking to the hope of the prophets who promised that one day we would see God. He's, he's echoing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. The glory of the Lord one day the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When Philip says, show us the Father, his heart's in the right place. He's asking the right question. He wants what he should want. He wants what all of us want, even if we don't know it. That's Philip's insight. But we also need to notice Philip's oversight. He doesn't yet see. That the answer to the longing of his heart and his mind is standing right there, right in front of him, right now. He doesn't yet get what is the main point of these verses. That, that Jesus is how we see and know God. That, that Jesus is the answer to the longing of the Psalms. That, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets like the prophet Isaiah. It is through Jesus that we know God. That's what he doesn't yet get. Look at how Jesus answers his, his request. Oh, Philip, he says. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? That is stunning. Philip had just said, show us the Father. And Jesus has said, you don't know me yet? 
And then in case Philip is still missing the point, he spells it out. The Father's in me. I'm in the Father. The things that I'm saying are his words. The things that I'm doing, they are his works. When you see me, you see him. Stunning. Jesus is really just stating here to Philip what John had summed up at the very beginning of this gospel. In the very beginning, before any of the action takes place, John gives us a little bit of an intro to the themes that are coming next. And he says, summing that part up, that the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. Now what Jesus is telling Philip here has two huge implications for us and our desire to know God. It helps us to see what it means and how it's possible. Here are two huge implications of what Jesus has said to Philip for, for what it means for us to know God. Implication number one is this. If we want to know God, we got to come to him on his terms. we got to approach him in the way that he has opened up to us. In other words, if we want to know God, we have to know him through Jesus. This is what Jesus had summed up in verse 6. We considered this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Jesus had said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, at first glance, that may seem really narrow and exclusive and stingy. But if you think about it, what Jesus is telling us here about how we know God is really no different than how any other relationship ever works. If it's personal, you've got to come to the person through the way that person has opened up to you. You can't know more than just a few facts about somebody. You can't really know somebody unless they open themselves to you, unless they show you who they are, unless they engage with you. You've got to come through the way that they open. Knowing God is more like knowing a friend than, than like knowing math or engineering. Think about this. The Egyptians somehow figured out how to build those pyramids. I have no idea how they got to it, 4,000 years ago or whenever it was, but they figured out how to make huge blocks of stone get to the top. I don't even know how, top, how tall these biggest ones are. They're, they're huge. They're mountains of stone. They figured out the engineering feats that were necessary to pull that off. About 2,000 years later, Mayans did the same thing. Mayan temples kind of formed into pyramids look, based on a lot of the same engineering principles. We don't know exactly how, but they, they figured it out. Now, how did the Mayans get there? Not by sending students over to, to Egypt to figure out how the Egyptians tapped into pyramid building. They didn't know the Egyptians had done that. Trial and error. The physical laws of the universe. Reality and how it works. Two separate ways to get to the same thing. They both got there because they were really just studying a set of principles that could, that, that could be manipulated to a fixed result. But relationships don't work like that. God's not a principle to figure out through your own trial and error. He's a friend that you get to know when he opens himself up to you. To get to know a person, you have to look at them and listen to them. And Jesus is saying, 
That's what He is. That's what He is. He is the way God has opened so that you can know Him. He is God opening Himself up to us. And He's the only way to get to the Father. To know God, we have to come on His terms. That means Jesus. But here's the second huge implication. And friends, it is such a comfort. We can know God because God wants to be known. We can know him because he wants us to. He has to open himself up to us if we're to know anything about him. Well, that's exactly what he's done through Jesus. Now think about this. This God, he is not stingy. He is not, he's not playing hard to get when he says, come to me through Jesus. This is him being generous with himself allowing us in to know the treasure that he is, what it is to love and trust and enjoy him. Just think about all he's done to make it possible for us to know him. He created a world full of other knowers so that they could know what the Father and the Son and the Spirit had known through all of eternity. How wonderful, how glorious God is. He created new knowers because he wants to be known. And as if that wasn't enough, he not only created this world full of knowers like me and you to know him and enjoy him, he entered this world so that knowers like me and you could get an up-close and personal look at who he is and at what he's like. And as if that wasn't enough, not only did he create a world, not only did he enter a world, in Jesus he went all the way to the cross so that we could know and enjoy him forever. Because, friends, the greatest barrier to our knowing God is not that he's hard to understand, not that our, that our imaginations don't stretch far enough. Our greatest barrier to knowing God is sin. Our sin is a breach in a personal relationship we were made for. It, it's us willingly choosing something other than him, prioritizing other relationships over him. And just like, it would, just like would occur in any other relationship where you put someone else first, there's a barrier here between us and him. Something had to be done about what we'd done to this relationship. And at the cross, through Jesus, God clears away the biggest barrier to us knowing him as he is. And when he clears that barrier away, he not only gets rid of what was blocking us from him, he pulls back a curtain on his own heart, and he shows us his love with a depth we could not possibly have seen otherwise. This is how we know what love is, John would write in his letter, 1 John chapter 3. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, my question for you to think about is this. Who is Jesus to your spirituality? If you can sense in yourself this desire to connect with something bigger than yourself, something beyond what you've experienced so far, who is Jesus to your search for something more? Jesus is showing us here in this text that he is the key. 
that this craving you were made to experience can be satisfied. That you can see the Father and it will be enough for you. But only if you come through Him. That's point number one this morning. We know God through Jesus. And it sets us up for point number two, verses 11 to 14. Others know Jesus through us. We know God through Jesus. Others know Jesus through us. This next little paragraph is not long, but man, is it packed with insight that takes a little digging to unveil. Jesus in this next paragraph makes two really striking, maybe even shocking claims back to back. Jesus says two things that we've got to understand out of this paragraph. He says that you, talking about his followers, talking about whoever believes in him, are going to do greater works than I've done. And then he says, anything you ask me for in my name, I'll do it. You're going to do greater works than I did, and whatever you ask me for in my name, I'll give you. These claims raise huge questions for us. What is he talking about? And there aren't a lot of context clues to work with here to flesh out what he means. But but I'm convinced that what he's saying here in verses 12 to 14 fits closely with what he just said in verses 7 to 11. There he was talking about what he was doing for his people. He was showing them the Father. He was pulling back this curtain and letting us see who God is. And here he's talking about what he'll do through his people. Here he's talking about his plan to reveal the beauty of the Father and bring more knowledge of God working out now through those who believe in him. I think claim number one tells us what Jesus does through us and claim number two tells us how Jesus works through us. What Jesus does through us, that's claim number one that he makes here. And how Jesus works through us, that's claim number two. Look with me at the first claim Jesus makes in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What's he talking about? In case that doesn't land on you yet as a striking or even shocking claim, let me put some context to it for you. From the very beginning of this gospel, John has been showing us Jesus in action through one after another big event that he calls signs. The story moves along through these signs. They're kind of the structure for the whole story John is telling. One after another, he shows us Jesus doing things that are just incredible. For example, chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine to keep a wedding party going late into the night. Then in chapter 4, Jesus reads the mind of a Samaritan woman that he meets for the first time sitting by a well near her village. He tells her all about her life, even though he'd never met her before. Then, right after that, in chapter 4, he heals the son of an official who asked him to come and help, help his son. His son is sick. Jesus heals him remotely. He doesn't even follow him into the village. He just says, go. Your son will be well. And he was. In chapter 5, he heals a man who's been disabled for 38 years, a man no one else could help or heal. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people with one boy's little snack. Then after that, he walks on water across the sea. In chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. 
In chapter 11, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. I mean, he, he just speaks to this guy. He's dead. He's been dead for, for days. He speaks to him. He comes walking out of the tomb. These are the works that Jesus has been doing so far in John. These are what are on his mind and what would have been on Philip's mind. And now he says that those who believe in him will do even greater works than these. Not just some of the people who believe in him. Not just the super gifted ones. But whoever believes in him. Normal Christianity looks like greater works than the works Jesus did. What could that possibly mean? I think there are two clues that help us figure out what he's talking about here. Two clues that help us understand what works he has in mind for us if we follow him. Clue number one is that he says, it's because I'm going to the Father that you'll do greater works than these. It's because I'm going to the Father. In in John's gospel, that's code language. It's a summary of everything Jesus is about to do. It's a summary for his death on the cross that he's about to die, for his resurrection. It's a a summary for his going back to the Father to reign in heaven next to his Father, his right hand. In other words, what he's saying is, because I'm about to do what I came to do, you'll do greater works than I've done so far. Another way to put it is, he's talking about works that couldn't be done unless he died, unless he rose again, unless he returned to the Father, unless he sent his Spirit to help his people. The greater works are greater because they come downstream of everything Jesus is about to do. That's clue number one. Clue number two is to think about what works does he actually give his followers to do. He never tells them to turn water into wine. He never tells them to raise the dead to life one by one. What does he tell whoever believes in him to do? Acts 1.8 tells us this. This is Jesus right before he ascends to his father. He's got all of his, his, his friends around him. And he says, you're about to receive power. The Holy Spirit is coming down on you. It's what he's about to talk about here in John 14, just a little bit later on. The Spirit is coming, and when you receive power, you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the work he gives them to do. They're going to speak on his behalf just like he's been speaking for his father. They're going to tell others what he has showed them. If we know God through Jesus, now others are going to know Jesus through us. Let me put these two clues together tell you what I think they mean. Let me tell you what I think Jesus is getting at here. Through his people, Jesus will carry on his work of showing who God is. Now, through his people, others come to experience all that Jesus has been talking about. Through his people, Jesus is going to apply the blessings of the gospel, the blessings he pays for because he went to his Father. These are the greater works. Think about it. Jesus turned water into wine. That was amazing. But, but because he's going to the Father through his people now, hearts of stone will turn to hearts of flesh. Jesus fed 5,000 hungry people. That was amazing. But because he's going to his Father through his people now, hungry souls will feed on him and be truly satisfied. Jesus, while he walked the earth, spoke true and wonderful words that came straight from his Father. But because he's going now, through the ministry of his people, those laws, those truths, they'll be written on people's hearts 
so that those who once hated his ways will come to love him. Jesus healed the sick. Amazing what he could do with a word. But because he's going to his Father, now through his people, forgiveness that's full and free and freeing from sin's penalty and power will spread to all who trust in him. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus raised the dead to life. Those things were amazing. But because he's going to his Father, now through his people, others will be born again to lives that will never die. This is a wholly different kind of miracle. This is a greater work even than those. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Friends, that's what happens when whoever believes in him takes up the work that Jesus left us to do. Think about it. Philip right here, he has seen Jesus his whole public ministry. He was there for all of it. For three years he's heard him. For three years he's seen all the signs. And he's standing there asking Jesus, please show us the Father. Peter, not long after this, will stand before a massive crowd in Jerusalem. He will preach a simple gospel message that took, I don't know, three minutes to to preach. And 3,000 people will become Christians on the spot. Hearts of stone turn to flesh. Jesus is giving us a ministry that far outshines his own. Because that's who he is. It's a greater work than anything Jesus ever did in Philip's presence. The greater work he's choosing to do through those who believe is applying everything he paid for at the cross and everything he kick-started through his resurrection. This is the miracle of conversion and sanctification where the old is put off and the new is put on. It's the miracle of growth in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And one day it will be completely and fully realized in the new and glorious world that he's bringing in. Friends, it's no accident that that all those miracles that Jesus was doing in John were referred to as signs. As incredible as they were, that's all they were. They were signs pointing to something better. Before he went to the Father, that's all he could do. This is coming. This is coming. This is coming. Wait for it. Watch for it. It's coming. But now... Now people can know the reality. Before, all those works were like a picture of a food item on a menu at a restaurant. Doesn't that piece of pie look great? Now the greater work is is, is to actually feed someone the pie. They can taste it for themselves. Last week, as as you all know if you came to church last week, uh, we were a bit encumbered by this massive IndyCar race that happened just, a, just, a, just over here next to the stadium. For a while before that race came, big billboards all around. And of course, my, my kids are seeing those and they're into it. Look at those cars. That's amazing. Those are coming. But you know what? The week before the event, one of their schools offered us free tickets to come watch the race and come interact with the cars in the IndyCar paddock. We went. The billboards had a had a function in our lives. They showed us something awesome was coming. But you know, the, the, the people who were standing at those gates with the little scanners who asked us to hold out our phones so they could scan the code, 
they ushered us into something much, much better. Inside those gates, we weren't just looking at a picture. Our insides were rattling as these cars came flying past us. Inside those gates, we're walking to where they're working on the actual cars. We are touching them. They even climbed into one inside those gates. The sign was impressive. Whoever hung it up there took his life into his hands to get up there. It was a great work. Well done. But the guys who were ushering us into the gates, that was a greater work. We saw it for ourselves because they let us in. And the greater work Jesus has given to his followers, to everybody who believes in him, is not to reproduce these amazing signs that had their place but that are no longer needed, but to usher people into the reality those signs pointed to. Normal Christianity is being part of how other people come to experience the goodness and the wonder of God. That's what Jesus is doing. So how? This is where I want to leave you today. The how comes in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. You probably don't need me to tell you where our minds tend to go when we read a statement like that. When usually we're trying to spin it out into extravagant personal indulgences. <laughs> like, so if I asked for you know, the place in Jackson Hole as well as the place in Barbados, maybe he'd also throw in the jet to get back and forth between them. Anything I ask, you'll give me? But if we've been paying attention to this context, we know that's not what he's got in mind. He's not talking about personal indulgence. He's talking about the work. He's talking about prayers that are in his name, not as some sort of spell, not as like an expelliarmus spell that he's got to do what we say we do because we said it in the name of Jesus. No, in, in his authority, for his agenda, in his kingdom. When we pray towards what he's doing, he says yes. Because his mission is to glorify the Father and the Son. That's what that first section was about. That's what he's doing through our prayer lives. He is glorifying the Father through the Son when we ask him to. And that is itself an incredible, I mean, almost unbelievable statement about the power of prayer. Think about it, guys. All the spiritual work of the gospel, all the benefits that Jesus came to pay for, he is now applying through us when we pray. Hearts of stone are turning to flesh when we pray. When we pray, the dead are coming back to life. When we pray, people who otherwise were headed for death are headed for resurrection when they trust in this God. He is doing his work because we ask him to. I don't know anyone who doesn't wish their prayer life was better, but I think Jesus is here pointing us to to what we need to deepen our prayer lives. He's not giving us a comprehensive guide to how we should pray or how we should get better. He's showing us what we need. We need, first of all, faith in him. If we don't believe that he is at work and that he works through us, then of course we won't pray. Sometimes we think our prayer problems are about a a, a lack of technique. Like we haven't just figured out the right practices or the right disciplines to get us to the next level. And I'm not going to say that disciplines and techniques don't, don't matter. They can really help. 
But thinking that that's the real issue is like thinking that you would run more if you had better shoes. You probably wouldn't. John Calvin talked about prayer as the way we dig out the treasures that are promised to us. He talks about the promises of the gospel as this incredible buried treasure. And the word of God tells us, here, here's where it is. Dig here. Prayer is how we shovel our way down to what he's offered us. Now, what would you say about someone who's been told there's treasure here and didn't dig? You'd say, like, they just don't believe it's down there. They don't believe. So Jesus has clearly told us there is treasure here. I want you to have it. Ask me for it. What does it say if we're not praying? We just don't believe it's down there. What we need for vibrant prayer life, first and foremost, is faith. And if you lack that faith, it's a great place to start with your prayer life. Lord, please, please help me to believe that you're worth asking. And with that faith, backed by that faith, what we need is focus. Focus like Jesus is giving us right here. We need to actually believe that there is nothing more important in the whole world than the knowledge of God. He is directing us to pray for the most precious gift that's ever been given to anyone from anywhere. Where does this focus come in your prayer life? When Paul prayed for his friends, let me me just give you a homework assignment. Read Ephesians and Colossians this afternoon and look for Paul's prayers. When Paul prayed for his friends, he prayed all sorts of stuff for them. He knew his father wanted him to ask for anything. So yes, he prayed for physical needs. But listen to what he prays for in Ephesians chapter 1. He prays that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus was doing here. That's what he said his people would do. It's what he asked them to ask for. Paul's doing it. He's praying that they will have the eyes of their heart enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he's called them. Then in Ephesians 3, he says, he prays that they'll have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And in Ephesians 6, you know what he asked them to pray for? He says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. He's praying that they will know God through Jesus, and he's praying, he's asking them to pray that through him others would come to know God through Jesus. That's the focus of his prayer life. I'm often asked how people can serve our church. I love to get that question. I hope you're asking it now. Let me answer it. You want to serve our church? Please, please pray. Pray for what's happening right now. I'm just blowing hot air up here. I'm giving it my best, but it's just blowing hot air if the Spirit is not backing the Word as I speak. Pray for your friends who have friends and neighbors and colleagues who don't know Jesus and they want to be faithful in sharing who he is. Pray that they will be. Pray for your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues who don't know Jesus that they would come to know him. Pray that, pray that our life together would be marked by the unity that comes from the gospel, that, that we would recommend him through how we love one another. Pray. Pray for your friends as they fight battles against sin. It is war all the way to heaven with the sin that still lives within us and the evil one who wants bad for us. Pray that your friends will fight the fight and see victory. Pray. Because anything we ask in his name, he'll do.
Let's take him up on it. Father, we pray to you right now that you would make good on these promises. And through your word shown to us in your son, we would come to know you as the great treasure in all the universe. And we pray that you would make us faithful, not just in sharing all about who you are, but in praying that you will work through us despite our weakness. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.